Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have given it to us that we might know you and what you have done. Lord, we do ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds today. In Christ's name, amen. There's this popular, common idea that there's no such thing as a stupid question. And <laughs> thank you. Uh, I understand the sentiment, right, that, that we're all ignorant, and, and there's a lot of simple things that we don't know the answer to, and our pride gets in the way, and we don't ask the question that everybody's begging to ask, and we just keep it to ourselves, worried that we're going to lose face instead of learning in the moment. That being said, I guess maybe I'm just old and a little bit cynical now or something, uh, but I totally believe that there are stupid questions. Uh, I, I have lots of, plenty of life experience and things that I could probably draw on for this, uh, but I think it really hit home for me the most uh, when I was a student teacher uh, back, I don't know, 13 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. Uh, I had just got done teaching a lesson to this high school class in history. Uh, and I sat down with my advisor, who was this, this guy, he was, he was blunt, and he was a good guy, and he was blunt, and uh, he just kind of told me that the way that things were. Uh, and he said something like this, he said, look, you did all right with your lesson, but you need to stop asking so many stupid questions of the students. These kids are smarter than that, and you need to start expecting them more. And, and he could have stopped there, but then he, he went on to say something like, not only were your questions unhelpful, they were somewhat insulting. Um, I mean, I just wish he would have been a little more blunt and told me how he really felt. Uh, but it was this moment that I had that I realized that, yes, absolutely, there are stupid questions out there. Now, Jesus, in our passage today, is given what I would consider a pretty dumb question. You remember where we are in Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus the King, this, this Prince of Peace, has come into the city of peace. Jesus is in Jerusalem, uh, and He's come in and He's found the city wanting. It's not what it's supposed to be. 
And so he comes in and there's this triumphal entry and he fires the first shots by cleansing the temple of what he finds there. And then they come back at him and they, the temple authorities ask, what authority do you have to do these things? And then Jesus gave them three devastating parables telling them about the religious leaders and how they've rejected the kingdom. And then last week, Pastor Mark started uh, looking at this new set of challenges that are arising to confront Jesus. The Pharisees had went out and they plotted to entangle Jesus with their words. And so they got together and they, they thought out a great question and they sent disciples to go trap Him, to make Him step into this political trap, to make Him lose face with the people and, and look foolish and to maybe give them some power over their adversaries and rivals. See, the, Jesus, the, Jesus, the, the Pharisees tried to use Jesus' words like a crowbar to leverage for themselves control and power at the expense of others. But as Pastor Mark noted last week, Jesus didn't fall into their trap. He didn't play their political games. And at His response, they just they marveled. And they left Him. And they went away. Now this week, we pick up with a second question. See, when the, they saw that the Pharisees had been humbled, the Sadducees, the bitter, bitter rivals of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin in this ruling body, took heart. And they brought to Jesus their champion question. Something they thought would be unwinnable. See, the Pharisees had focused on politics. But then the Sadducees come and they, they bring up this theological point that they want to pick with Jesus. Again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees think that Jesus is on their level. That they can trick Him. That His words can be manipulated by their cleverness. But again, we see that they're 100% wrong. That Jesus won't be manipulated. That despite their twistedness, Jesus brings out the truth. Glorious truth. If you got the email, Mark had a great line in it. He said that Jesus elevates the discussion to a higher off-field plane. And that's what we see here. I have to thank Mark when he gets back. So what we'll do this morning is we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the question itself. It doesn't come right out at the page at us and give us an understanding. And so we're going to spend a little time seeing what they're trying to say here. But at the end of the day, I don't really care if you remember the question or not. What I really care about is that you remember Jesus' answer. Because He gives us an answer that is brimming with hope and with confidence in who our God is and how He will take care of His people at the resurrection. And to give you neat little hooks, something to sort of pin this on, I have three truths that Jesus teaches in this encounter that I want you to remember. One, the resurrection is a future reality. It will happen. Two, at the resurrection, we will be ushered into eternal life which will be far greater than earthly marriages or anything that this world has to offer. And three, we'll look at the statement that our God is the God of the living. And we'll dig into what that means and what Jesus is getting at there. So before we begin, let's, let's go ahead and look at the question itself. 
And actually, Matthew kind of digs in. He shows us some presuppositions before the question. Like, what are the Sadducees thinking? What's their point in bringing this question to Jesus? And in verse 23, he tells us, look, they don't believe in the coming resurrection. See, the Sadducees were this this group of theologians that were actually anti-supernaturalists. Or maybe a better way of saying that, they're just naturalists. They believe in the things that can be observed and measured. The things that you can smell and see and hear and taste and touch. See, in their minds, there were no such things as angels or demons or heaven or hell or the resurrection or eternal life. Now, this world, in their mind, is all that we have. And so I guess we better make the most of it. Now, this being said, they also considered themselves to be very religious, that they are religious leaders. And their scripture that they used wasn't the whole Old Testament. It was just the first five books, the the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They believed in God. They believed in His law. But anything else that was supernatural, they just thought was probably superstitious. And so they ask this question. And we know, knowing where they're coming from, that they're not coming to Jesus to seek information or to learn from Jesus. I don't know. They're coming to win an argument, to make Jesus look silly, and to show you that the resurrection itself must be absurd. And so they bring this case study to Jesus, and in mock humility, they they come to Him and they say, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And so what they're doing is they're going back to Deuteronomy and they're looking at a law in the Old Testament called a a leveret law, a brother-in-law marriage. And and rather than explain it, I'll just read what we have here in Deuteronomy 25. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so we see here that this is a law to take care of the widow, the dead man's brother. Well, no, the brother is to take the dead man's widow as his wife to take care of her. See, it's this practical Old Testament instruction that protects the widow. It keeps the family land and possessions all together. And then it also preserves family lines. But what the Sadducees try to do is use this argument against the resurrection. And so they bring this exaggerated, I have to believe it's hypothetical situation to Jesus and say, you be the judge of this. How is this supposed to work? All right. Let's say there are these seven brothers and the first one gets married to this woman and he dies. And so his second brother steps up to the plate. He marries her and he dies. And the third marries her and he dies. Right. And like all the way down to seven, like at some point you would think like maybe this woman isn't the best thing for this family. Right. But 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 they, they don't they're, whatever. Like they're just saying, like, what do we do with this? And so, like, Jesus, I want you to riddle this, this. Like, think through this situation. Like, at the resurrection, they'll all be raised, right? They're, they're all going to be present, and they're all going to be married. 
right? Like there's seven brothers and this woman, and they've all been legally, righteously married according to the law. Like, are they just supposed to all be married in heaven? You know, or, or maybe that's not right. So now we're going to separate her from six of the brothers. They're going to have to get divorced. Like, which one should she be married to? Right? Should it be the first one since he was first, or the last one because she was last, or, or maybe the one that, she, that lived the longest, however long that was, um, maybe the one that she loved the most? Like, how, like how are you so supposed to pick? Like, how are we supposed to know? Like, Jesus, can't you see that the idea of the resurrection itself is pretty silly? It gets pretty awkward when you try and think about it logically. I mean, how do you really expect us to believe in the resurrection? When an awkward situation like this might happen according to God's law. We can begin to see their logic a little bit. I mean, they, they're basically taking Scripture, something true and something revealed, and, and then they're fumbling around to find something that looks like an exception to them. They blow it out of proportion, and then they use it to deny something in the Scriptures that they don't really like something that they don't want to be true, and then they come forward and they act like it's common sense. I mean, I'd love to believe that this sort of biblical gymnastics doesn't happen today, but in the fallen world we live in, we can all say that absolutely it happens. It happens all over the place. It happens all around us. It's easy to spot when people twist Scripture to gain money or to get power or to take some sin that they want to continue to do and make it not sin anymore and probably even a good thing. Or maybe take the right things that God has called His people to do and, and you know what, those are really hard. Maybe we don't have to do those. They push down the truth. But what about us? We consider the log that's in our own eye. Do we ever come to God's Scriptures, come to God's Word with our minds already made up about the truth? Do we let the Scriptures direct us and tell us about reality, the purpose for which we've been created, help us distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, healthy, unhealthy? Or do we ever try and be clever, maybe somewhat subtle, manipulating what we find to leverage the Scriptures into saying the thing that we really actually at the end of the day want it to say in the first place? See, left to ourselves, we all have an authority problem. And we'd rather do the things that we want to do than the things that God has told us. See, he is, His Word is uncomfortable to us. And it does. It makes us awkward. It makes us stick out in a world that doesn't give a rip about what God has to say. And we can be so good at justifying ourselves and even coming up with biblical-sounding reasons why what we do and what we say and what we think is okay. But at the end of the day, it's often just our little Sadducean selves showing through. You sing that silly song at our house sometimes, I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. That's a silly song, but there's a line in there, I don't want to be a Sadducee, I don't want to be a Sadducee, I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you get it. I don't want to be a Sadducee. But we're fooling ourselves if we think that we're above this. And we don't slip into God's Word sometimes and try and soften it where we think it's too hard or bend it where going straight doesn't suit us. 
Calvin urges us to come to Scripture humbly and modestly and submissively to inquire of God what is right and what is true from the source of truth itself. See, God opens up His Word to us and through His Spirit, He teaches us and He convicts us of what is wrong and He reminds us of what Christ has taught us. So let's be diligent in suspecting ourselves as we come to the Scriptures and strive to actually submit to the Word of God. So the Sadducees have, have told this story and, and then they've asked this silly little question. But despite their evil intentions, Jesus gave us beautiful truths for us to hang on to. See, he could have blown them off. Like when I, when I read through this, this text and I see his response and the first three words are, you are wrong. Like I, I, in my mind, I'm like, that's a mic drop moment. Like you are wrong, done. But Jesus doesn't do that. He graciously gives us more. We get to hear more. We get truths to hang on to. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then in the rest of His response, we can see that He just assumes the resurrection is a coming reality. And so the first thing that we cling to is that the Scriptures and the power of the God declare that there will be a bodily resurrection. Jesus says so. The Old Testament says so. The New Testament writers are even more clear on this. They say so. It will be so. There will be a bodily resurrection and no scheme or power or clever argument can overcome God's power in raising the dead. We remember that death is an unnatural intrusion in this world, that it wasn't there in the beginning, but came with the fall. And when death came, it came into the whole world like an invasive species. It touched everything, ruined everything in its way, bringing chaos where there should be order. And so we know that when loved ones die, they're wrenched away from us. They're ripped away. And they leave holes that shouldn't exist. But even so, as believers, Paul reminds us that when we grieve, we don't grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. And so our greatest proof for the resurrection is the reality that Jesus Himself rose from the dead. That Jesus died on Good Friday with an earthquake and with darkness and the ripping of the curtain in the temple. But three days later on Easter Sunday morning, He rose from the dead with an earthquake and bright light and the opening of the tomb. And because Jesus rose as a first fruit, we too shall be raised up with Him on the last day. Death will be swallowed up in victory. We shall be raised imperishable, clothed in immortality to a world without sin or suffering, sorrow or pain, death or tears. And so we wait in expectation and hope, trusting in Jesus, in the words of Scripture, in the power of God, that He will not abandon us on the last day. And Jesus does more than just teach us 
that the resurrection is going to occur. Our second comfort that he tells us is that in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. I will admit to you that at first glance, I didn't find this statement very comforting. Um, To add to my discomfort with this uh, is a a question of timing as our anniversary is coming up. Uh, Actually, to be more accurate, my anniversary is today. And so as I, we've been talking about being married and remembering the beauty of marriage and all the, the permanence, I'm getting ready to preach this sermon. But on January 7, 2011, Christine and I were married. And so we stood before God and before the ministers and before family and friends, thankful for the gift of marriage, that God was bringing two people together to make one. And we vowed to one another to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, in sickness and in health, like whatever may come to pass, we would be true to one another. And that day we were participating in this ceremony that went way back to the very, very beginning before sin even entered the world to Adam and Eve in the garden. See, all that God had made at the creation, He said was good. And yet the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And what God did wasn't to make Adam a hunting buddy or a bro to hang out with and play video games with. He didn't make him a parent or a child. No, He made him a wife. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. See, Adam would no longer be alone, but be in community. He would multiply and fill the earth. He was there to work it, to enjoy it, and subdue the world together with his wife. See, the Bible has a really, really, really high view of marriage. Something that often escapes our words. We can't express ourselves. And so we need to use poetry and song. And it calls for beautiful self-giving and service and humility, and respect, and submission, and exclusivity, righteous jealousy, and love in a relationship that is really carefully separated from every other relationship in this world. And so I had the immense privilege and pleasure of telling Christine this morning that happy anniversary. You're welcome. We won't be married in heaven. Like, what's, but what's Jesus getting at? Like, what's the point of this? How is this comforting at all? I mean, after everything we've just said about God blessing marriage and it being a good thing, why aren't our ideas eternal? Well, for one thing, it won't be needed in heaven. See, we won't be alone as Adam was, but we'll be in great community in heaven. We won't need to fill the new heavens and the new earth with offspring because the banquet hall will be full and will be in a place where there are no births and no deaths. Another reason is that in our resurrected life, we'll be different. It'll be really different from the world that we now live in today. Now, scripturally speaking, it's true that life after the resurrection is pretty blurry to our minds. And yet the overwhelming reality that we get over and over and over again in Scripture 
is that whatever it will be, it will be far greater than what we experience in this life. Paul tells us that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. So there will be continuity, things that exist both in this old world that we now inhabit and in the one to come, but there's going to be really big differences as well. Things too wonderful for us to grasp, too amazing for us to imagine in the present. You can imagine the greatest moment in your life and then extend that out to the farthest degree. We know that this is but a shadow of what is to come. Sometimes in the, in the van on the way to youth group, we have really deep conversations about different things. And, and last year, the kids and I were talking about, imagine the greatest moment of your life. And we came up with, maybe the Vikings get to go to the Super Bowl. Let's just pretend. Uh, maybe the Vikings get to go to the Super Bowl. And maybe you're the star player on the team. And maybe the, the ball is coming down as, as time is going off the clock and you're reaching out to make this impossible catch to win this impossible game and everyone in the world is watching you and everything that you've dreamed of for the enti- your entire life is about to come true. Wouldn't you, in that moment, prefer to live that moment and then have Jesus come and go to heaven? Wouldn't that be better? We say absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not a chance. Even the greatest moment in this life will pale in comparison to the grandness, the the, the beauty of even the tiniest slice of eternity. To even our sweetest, most tender, most wonderful moments in any ideal marriage. Don't compare to what God has prepared for His people. Another reason and And the greatest reason why we won't be married in glory is that when the new heaven and the new earth appear, another marriage will take place. See, Paul tells us in Ephesians that our earthly marriages actually point us to a greater reality. The fact that Jesus purchased for Himself a bride, the church, that He has loved her And He gave Himself up for her so that she might appear before Him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. That marriage in heaven is between Christ and His church. In Revelation, John tells us that he saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. See, what makes heaven so marvelous, so wonderful, so awesome, so mind-blowing to us is that God will be there. And He will be with His people and we will see Him as He is with glorified bodies and purified minds. We will praise Him and always be with Him enjoying a relationship that resembles but is far superior to even the most ideal marriage in this life. 
And so then we come to the third comfort that Jesus gives us. We come to verses 31 and 32 uh, where Jesus says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. This is an interesting argument that Jesus is making, to say the least. See, the resurrection is secure because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And what Jesus does is he appeals to the Scriptures that the Sadducees believe in. He goes back to Exodus, to this pivotal moment in covenantal history as God appears before Moses at the burning bush. And he tells Moses that I am the eternal God who was, who is, and who is to come. That the God who is, is in all places and at all times present. That He is a God who keeps His covenant love and obligations to His people. And He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. No, He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a present, continuing relationship. That God is the God of the living. Which means that even when our mortal bodies die, we don't cease to exist. That our God's love and bond with His people is even stronger than the cords of death. He will not be separated from His beloved by anything. He told Martha a short time before this as they were on their way to Jerusalem and Lazarus had died. You remember the conversation. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? What a question for us to end on. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection of the life? Do you believe with Paul that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that God is the God of the living, not of the dead? When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins, turning to Him alone for salvation, we come under His wing and enjoy a relationship with Him that is unshakable. His covenant love and benefits are ours in the present now, but they will be fully realized on the last day. See, the Sadducees sought to trip Jesus up, but Jesus wasn't at their level. And like the good, loving Savior that He is, He took the time to take their silly question and teach us about the wonders that await us and the hope and the confidence that belong to His people. The resurrection of the dead will happen. Eternal life will be infinitely more joyous and beautiful than anything in this world. We will participate in the marriage of the Lamb. And that God is the God of the living. That even if death now parts us 
from those we love and takes us away from one another, we serve a God who will never, ever, 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 ever leave us or forsake us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.